0: The information shared as part of this carbon series is general in nature. We're asking questions of Professor Richard Eckhart, and he's providing his insights from his expertise. Humans of Agriculture doesn't endorse any of his views as part of this. They're really designed to just be conversation starters. And if you want to get more information, please reach out to specialists and experts in the carbon space. Welcome back to episode two of Carbon Shortcuts, an introduction to all things carbon in Aussie agriculture. This series is sponsored by Ruminati, a carbon measurement tool. And after episode three, we'll be sitting down with co-founder Bobby Miller to hear more about it. Now we love seeing so many people getting involved in and asking questions on social media following our little preview episode and episode one. Please keep reaching out to us. We'd love to hear from you with any questions you've got. Hello at humansofagriculture.com or hit us up on social media. We are all ears. And really hoping that the conversations that we're starting here get you curious about What are the challenges and also the opportunities for agriculture in everything carbon? I think, Sam, what was interesting over the weekend, I saw that there's two farms in, well, in Australia, but I think they're in Northern New South Wales or Southern Queensland, and they've racked up more than 150,000 credits. And in the comments section, what someone was saying is, when they started to look at this project, which was held between 2016 and I think 2022, The person said, oh, were they measuring for biodiversity credits as well, which is pretty timely for episode two. What have we got in store?
1: Well, if you haven't listened to episode one, we recommend you head back and listen to it as the conversation covers a lot. We cover baseline years, Australia's emissions goals, whether livestock can ever actually be carbon neutral, and the role of ag in mitigating carbon emissions, as well as some of the ways that you can participate in the market. So for episode two, Ollie and I are back with Professor Richard Eckhart from the Uni of Melbourne to learn about the different types of markets, the difference between offsetting and its insetting, and Richard begins to speak about biodiversity credits. So let's get into it.
0: Kicking off, can you tell us like what is an ACU and what's the difference between the voluntary market and the compliance market?
2: An ACU, the acronym stands for Australian Carbon Credit Unit. Every country that has a government scheme would have their definition of their EU carbon credit or New Zealand carbon credit unit. And an Australian carbon credit unit is basically one ton of carbon dioxide equivalent that is either stored or avoided. What I mean by avoided, you didn't produce one ton of methane equivalent, you didn't produce one ton of nitrous oxide, or you now have one ton of carbon dioxide equivalent stored in the soil or trees. And for that, assuming you have complied with a Australian carbon credit methodology, the Clean Energy Regulator can award you with a carbon credit unit or units.
0: Can you give us some examples of who's participating in each of both the voluntary and compliance market and some of the examples of, I guess, the trades that are happening there?
2: Yeah, so there's quite a difference between a voluntary market and a compliance market. I generally refer to a compliance market as being The New Zealand ETS or the Australian Emission Reduction Fund or Carbon Offset Methodology Fund or the European Union Trading Scheme or the Alberta Scheme. Those are government-run schemes, so we call them compliance schemes. So inherently they tend to be more belt and braces. They tend to be more more evidence-based, stronger burden of proof, stronger compliance, adherence to certain principles, integrity principles. And so what you'll find is entities in Australia that can comply with that methodology of we have planted trees and we can show you there are the trees, or we can demonstrate we've measured soil carbon on day one and five years later we measured soil carbon. There's a big difference between the two. Then you can comply with the methodology and trade on the Australian market. Voluntary markets have existed for at least a decade, if not longer. These are international markets generally, the Voluntary Carbon Standard or VERA. The gold standard is another one. Those are the two big ones. And they have a bunch of methodologies for the agricultural sector, but also the industrial sector. So, for example, if you fed a dietary supplement to dairy cows in northern Victoria tomorrow, you could register that project with the voluntary carbon market under what we call the Trail or the diet supplement method. This is a method that was created for Mutrail as a product initially, but now Bovier or 3NOP is compliant and you can actually look at putting other methodologies in it. The basic calculation is a lot more simplistic probably the integrity basis is not quite as strenuous but the big difference is a compliance market has a unique identifier on every carbon credit and the government is responsible for tracking them in a registry so we know at any one time where any Australian carbon credit unit is anywhere in the economy. If I sell it to you you've got to change hands on the registry So we know where they are and we know how to reconcile them all and that's really important from integrity. The voluntary market, it's not part of the business model to have unique identifiers. So technically you can sell the same soil carbon three times on three voluntary markets and they don't know about each other, which is a big issue. You can see, so in their business model, having unique identifiers so that you can globally reconcile all the carbon being sold is not in the business model. Now, it doesn't mean to say they're not doing good. They are doing good. The flaw comes in where... If you are not honest in how you sold soil carbon, you can sell the same soil carbon on three separate markets without them knowing about each other. That's the difference. The Australian carbon market is one of the bigger compliance markets now around the world. We think it's reached a bit of saturation because if you look at the number of trades that are taking place, they're now decreasing in every reverse auction that the government runs because all the easy credits have been bought. The more difficult ones remain. And so when you look at the graph of volume, it's definitely tailed off into the last couple of auctions that have taken place. The voluntary markets around the world are just steadily growing because more and more people are becoming aware of the potential of using voluntary carbon credits to claim that your law business in New York City is carbon neutral. And you can go to a voluntary carbon market and buy the carbon offsets for a dollar a ton when the EU price is more like 70 a ton and the Australian price is more like 35 a ton. You can buy cheap credits on the voluntary market and claim to be carbon neutral. So that's always going to grow that market. In terms of size, I couldn't give you a number on it, just that the dollar value is going to increase as demand ratchets up. So you can imagine the safeguard mechanism coming in where all entities now have to reduce their emissions by 6% per year or buy credits. Suddenly, the idea of Australian carbon credits being $35 a tonne, they'll be 75 like they were before they were deregulated. It won't take long. And the voluntary market in a similar fashion.
1: It's interesting that you said earlier, I would just be curious to know any specific areas that you were referencing that you know weren't being picked up as much in Australia in terms of the market.
2: In terms of the Australian carbon credit market, in terms of the compliance market in Australia, We see most of the action in the forestry sector. So most of the carbon credits traded are avoided deforestation, human-induced regeneration and plantations. That's where most of the action is. And it's probably not surprising because the forestry sector has known about carbon credits and carbon sequestration for generations. It's nothing new for them. When these rules were being made up, they were sitting in the front row of the negotiating table when agriculture didn't even recognise there was a problem. So the next biggest beneficiary is town councils with methane generation from effluent and waste. Something we've known for thousands of years is you put organic material in a wet environment, anaerobic, and you can generate a flammable gas. We've known that for generations. So again, the technology quite mature and ready to move. So that's why that was second. If you look at where the rest of the action is in the industrial sector, it's quite lacking. The number of carbon credits traded in where the big emitters are producing their emissions, it's almost negligible under the scheme.
0: I think, like, something I'm curious about is it feels like potentially the discussion is oh, overnight this carbon market has come. There's a potential to get another diversified revenue off your farm or through your business for doing not a whole lot. How much front up investment is needed to actually start to get and accrue these credits versus, I guess, the payout and what that payout looks like over, say, a five, 10, 25-year period.
2: Yeah, look, there's a very salient point in that we did a whole analysis of a number of projects quite a long time ago now, but we came up with this rough rule of thumb that a single carbon offset project on a single family farm would generate less than 1% of the farm's turnover. So you take a $2 million dairy business, a single offset method would generate them $2,000. Now, we can't get farmers to soil test to save themselves $10,000 let alone get them out of bed for 2000 But if you think about it, when you look at where all the action is, it's with larger corporates. Why is that? Because 0.1% of turnover of the largest corporate agriculture enterprises turns out to be $20 million. So numerically, the corporates are making it work. And for that level of revenue, most of the corporates can afford to have their own internal carbon management offices. What's it to pay $150,000 for a carbon management officer when you generate millions of dollars of carbon revenue? So that's why the scheme has favoured the larger corporates, just because of volume. The incentive for individual family farms, even if you had brokers, aggregate brokers across multiple properties, it still doesn't change the revenue back to the individual family farm. So for most of broadacre agriculture, that's why they're not engaged, just because the revenue stream is just not enough.
0: And so I guess to that point, the carrot's not going to come in this approach? Is it going to be more of a stick? And this is just your ability for market access that's coming into it?
2: Yes, yeah, so I would point to this sort of climate active paper that's been released. So we've been working with climate active on a, an insetting framework for agriculture, recognising that you can go only so far with carbon credits as an incentive. In the end, the supply chain is going to set targets and we're going to have to comply with supply chain targets, which means keep your carbon for yourself, inset it, do an honest audit on your farm, and as long as it meets the supply chain requirements for demonstrating low emissions, you inset towards making sure you have priority access into your supply chain. So by 2030, that is going to be the main game in town, is a shift out of this notion of diversified income from carbon, realizing that if we didn't keep it for ourselves, we might lose the main game, which is selling our product.
0: So you've just introduced a new concept or a new terminology there to us. Can you just touch on the difference between offsetting? and in-setting.
2: When we first started in this game, it was all carbon offsets, was the terminology we were all using, where someone out there is producing more emissions than they're allowed to, and in agriculture we can store carbon in soils, but maybe we can make revenue by selling them our carbon. They buy our carbon as an ACU, Australian Carbon Credit Unit, and they retire that against their obligation, which means that they've used it to offset the emissions they couldn't reduce. When we did the Net Zero Australia plan, it became so obvious to us that agriculture needed to keep its carbon. It can't actually afford to sell it because, well, supply chain access is our main game, which then we needed a term to say, well, what's the difference between generating an Australian carbon credit unit versus just keeping your carbon for yourself? And so insetting came about as a result where we said, well, let's not offset, sell it as an offset. Let's keep it as an inset within our farm because that carbon's physically sitting in your soil. It's physically sitting in your trees. So let's call it an inset in your farming operation towards your own carbon balance down the track.
1: I think that's a really interesting point you make in terms of building the long-term resilience of a property and a commodity that doesn't actually leave the farm gate. And I guess if you had anything to share with farmers, what advice would you have about considering insetting and offsetting, like really tangible considerations?
2: When I say insetting, we're largely talking about soil and tree carbon. So let's have a conversation about those two briefly because when we do a number of case studies on soil carbon, we find that the inherent productivity value of high soil carbon is one or two orders of magnitude more profitable back to the farm than selling a carbon credit out of that soil. So the question is, why would you bother selling carbon credits, soil carbon credits, when the inherent productivity value you're going to get is going to be about 200 bucks a hectare out of more production out of that soil? So that justifies insetting, because there's no paperwork, there's no 100-year commitments, 25-year commitments, there's no giving 30% of your carbon credits away to an aggregator before you even get the revenue from your carbon credits. You just inset them. Keep the productivity for yourself as a part of the game. We're starting to see trees the same way, where Rod Keenan and I have been working on the Trees on Farm project, quantifying the inherent productivity benefit of planting trees on farm for lamb survival, for example, or extra milk production on those wet and windy days. Turns out that a little bit of lamb survival will pay for the trees, but carbon credits won't, generally. But it makes a difference in how we think about trees in the landscape. It says, well, it's not that block on the poor soil at the back of the farm that we're now going to sell to a carbon market. It's actually trees on the western boundary of some of our key paddocks, so we've got lamb shelter or post-shearing shelter. And so it does make us think differently about how we value these, because if you get it right, you wouldn't bother with selling carbon offsets from the farm. You would just keep them as insets because of the productivity value and then it gives you access to your supply chain by 2030.
1: All those various co-benefits for your farm.
2: Yeah, so you count up all the co-benefits first. So, you know, soils, extra nitrogen and mineralisation out of those soils saves you on fertiliser. Extra water-holding capacity of a high-carbon soil, that gives you better growth between breaks in rainfall. Better pH, better cation exchange. Then you go to trees and you start saying lamb survival, you say wildlife corridors, riparian restoration, meeting biodiversity credits by 2030. And that's one thing I wanted to come on to is because the supply chains have all set targets that will start by 2030, no one's going to be selling carbon credits out of agriculture by 2030. We'll be keeping them. So the notion of carbon credits disappears as the language because we're insetting our carbon. The next ESG, environmental services that will be demanded, is we're very quickly shifting to biodiversity credits. You can see it all over the place now. And so we need to plot a pathway from where we are now with a focus on carbon, which is probably unhealthy, to a focus by 2030 where biodiversity credits are the main game. And carbon is an attribute of that biodiversity credit, which it is. It, 45% of all organic material is carbon. So any biodiversity increase on your property is carbon. But then the right person's getting paid because the biodiversity credit says, are you a nine out of ten on potential biodiversity on these five metrics? Yes or no. So historic good management gets rewarded. Where soil carbon, we're rewarding the wrong people. We're saying you've got three percent soil carbon, you've got potential to go to five percent. Well, the taxpayer is going to pay you to go to five percent instead of us asking. Well, hang on, why aren't you five percent? What have you been doing to stuff up your soil that you're three percent? You should have been five. We should pay you to go beyond five. You see how the wrong person gets paid. So the laggards get paid rather than the forward movers. So what we're trying to do is through the biodiversity credits is move us to a situation where the first movers are being rewarded for good management.
1: And on that good management and the credibility of the carbon market going forward and Australian carbon credits, what do you think needs to change to ensure the integrity going forward, say for farmers wanting to participate?
2: Yeah, if it's biodiversity credits, we've got to shift very quickly out of the notion that it's just trees, because at the moment there seems to be a bit of a dogma, well, there is a biodiversity pilot out of government that to engage in it, you have to engage in the environmental plantings methodology and then the biodiversity credit market, which sends a signal saying biodiversity is about trees. It's not. It's so much broader than that. Biodiversity is about soil microbial diversity. It's about plant species diversity in the landscape. And if you think about it in its greatest context, it's about building more resilience to the climate shocks coming along. So I think in terms of the integrity, why I said we need to map the pathways, the rules of the game for biodiversity are not as clear as the rules for carbon. Carbon's got some pretty clear rules, pretty additionality, permanence, all those rules that had to be in place for carbon credits. They don't yet exist for biodiversity. So in terms of integrity, We still have to come to a point where we develop the metrics that we are going to measure it by. But as an overriding concept, it has to be measured as what potential have you achieved? What have you achieved relative to the potential of the land that you have on your farm? That has to be the way it is assessed because then it's equitable for everybody.
0: You started to talk about biodiversity. We're taking a step back and talking about carbon at this stage and I guess the lack of uptake and just... The challenges there are in actually understanding what actually seems like quite a black and white piece around carbon biodiversity is a whole new ballgame you said it's not just about measuring trees it's about everything that exists in that environment on the property so where are people going to start and where is the biodiversity space moving
2: yeah look biodiversity by its nature, is going to be a bit less reductionist, more complex than carbon. Carbon, we didn't spend 20 years debating the rules on how to measure carbon because another outside organisation, the IPCC, told us how we had to measure it. That sort of got us going on carbon a lot quicker. Biodiversity, we can make it as complicated as we want or we can simplify it. Now, you've got to think about, for example, acoustic sensors are already being used in the landscape. You put acoustic sensors on your farm, and based on the noise we receive back, we can tell what insects are there, which tells us what trees are there, what pollen is there. Based on the birds, we can tell, are they insect feeders, are they vegetation feeders? Then you get an index of what vegetation is flowering on the farm, what other things are doing on the farm. So so let's not forget that technology can deal with a lot of this a lot quicker by using surrogate measures, and it might just be that simple. It might be bury cotton lint in the field and how much has disappeared a week later tells you what the soil microbiology is doing, how active the soil microbes are. Put an acoustic sensor in the paddock and you get the trees, you get the insects, you get the birds, you get the flowers. And then satellite remote sensing can tell you how diverse your crop rotations or your crop species are. So we could get it down to five remote measurements that are not extensive in themselves, not time-consuming, not expensive, but will give the results that are surrogate measures of what's happening. The reason I mentioned that the metric would be relative to potential would have to take into account the farming system, because if you're in Western Victoria and you are a grazing property that has 20% trees in the landscape, your biodiversity starting point is much higher than a Wimmera Mallee cropping property that has got a two-kilometre fetch of ploughed field. And The ploughed field probably has two bird species per hectare, whereas the biodiverse farm, we know one of them near Hamilton Airport's got 179 species on the farm. The difference is vegetation in the landscape. So it comes back to biodiversity has to be relative to the system you've imposed. There's no doubt that a lot of our cropping systems, the soil biodiversity has declined and can increase you would probably argue that a lot of our grazing systems, long-term grazing systems, have the biodiversity that they're going to have. But currently you would say we could fund the cropping system to improve biodiversity, but we're not going to pay the grazier to improve their biodiversity. That's wrong, because they are custodians of a significant amount of biodiversity on behalf of the public good. I often talk about this farm we went to in Alice Springs where the farm was twice the size of the Netherlands. The methane... Being produced by one animal to 40 hectares is less than the termites were producing per hectare. So if you wanted to try and measure methane on the farm, you're never going to do it because the termites are producing more. But the farm had 20% mallee covering the landscape and you had clouds of budgies flying over your head and you had clouds of insects flying over your head because when they came to do our carbon audit, all their scope threes were zero because they'd never used a chemical on the place. So you start arguing, hang on, these farms are managing a massive amount of biodiversity on behalf of the public good we should find a way to reward that in terms of methodologies we see two two methods emerging in carbon markets we see activity based and measurement based so both can exist and they can both coexist so we could find a future biodiversity market where some of the measures are activity based i've gone out of conventional cultivation into minimum tillage and i'm retaining stubble that's activity based and that can be credited or adherence to best practice. Here's a best practice list for the cotton industry. How many can you tick off? Yes, I'm at the top of that. What does that mean for biodiversity? But then you can get measurement-based as well, and the carbon markets have got both going. Even within our soil carbon methods, we've got both. If you think about the first soil carbon method was measure before, measure after. Clearly measurement-based. The second one was run the full cam model and we'll give you a conservative estimate. That's activity-based because it said if you go to minimum tillage, this is what we'll give you. So just within our soil carbon two methodologies, we've got activity versus measurement in two different methods. So they can be used. There's no doubt that regenerative grazing tends to be less DSC per hectare, less intensive, because part of the gain in carbon, is not a soil carbon, but part of the gain in carbon stocks in the landscape is about leaving more pasture behind and creating more ground cover through litter. Now a lot of that burns off very quickly through just natural oxidation and it doesn't necessarily, it takes sort of 20 years before you see a change in soil carbon but what it does mean is that the trade-off could be well if you just reduce stocking rate you reduce your profitability because you have reduced utilization and utilization is one of the biggest indicators of profitability but if there was a reward for reduced utilization as in there are greater carbon stocks sitting in the landscape because now you have more microbes eating up carbon in the landscape and you can reward that, well then that could balance out. And look, every farm's going to come up with their balance point between that because the general grazing management consultant will tell you the greatest pathway to profitability is pasture utilization. If you go for a regenerative as a philosophy, well you've backed off on pasture utilization on the idea that more carbon in the landscape is going to generally pay back in the long term.
1: And more carbon-rich, I'd say, definitely opens more opportunities for farmers in terms of accreditation and potential premiums, depending on what practices they're doing, which we're going to unpack more of in our next conversation, which will be exciting.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot to unpack in there. Absolutely.
0: Well, that's it for episode two. And please hit us up with any comments or questions you've got. We continue to ask a few questions up the front in the next few episodes. So please reach out to us with anything you've got and we will try our best to get it answered. We know it's a complicated area and I know for me it's definitely taking a couple of listens on each of these episodes to actually gain a better understanding from what Richard's saying. So, if you're like me, maybe just hit rewind and go back to the beginning of it.
1: Join us next week for Episode 3 as we start to flesh out some of the opportunities And the hurdles for farmers the first two episodes took us on a macro view to understand an intro to carbon and the next two will start to get a bit more specific as we look along the supply chain and inside the farm gate so see you then